My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll add my welcome to Todd's welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, Don't think you're here by accident in any way. In fact, I'll see if I can prove that from uh, the text this morning. So Psalm 139, that's where we're going to be. We've been talking about the attributes of God. I will begin. We said attributes are describing who God is. Uh, A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. And I'll tell you Danny Dutton um, from Chula Vista, California. He's age eight and was assigned in his third grade class uh, to write a paper explaining God. Here's what he said. One of God's main jobs is making people. He makes them to replace the ones that die so there'll be enough people to take care of things on earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies. I think because they're smaller and easier to make. That way, he doesn't have to take up his valuable time teaching them to talk and walk. He can just leave that to the mothers and the fathers. God's second most important job is answering prayers. An awful lot of this goes on since some people, like preachers and things, pray at times besides bedtime. God doesn't have time to listen to the radio or the TV because of this, but because he hears everything, there must be a terrible lot of noise in his ears, unless he's thought of a way to turn that off. God sees everything and hears everything and is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy. So you shouldn't go wasting your time going over your mom and dad's head asking for something they said you couldn't have. Atheists are people who don't believe in God. I don't think there are any here in Chula Vista, at least not any that go to my church. Jesus is God's son. He used to do all the hard work like walking on water and performing miracles and trying to teach the people who didn't want to learn about God. They finally got tired of him preaching to them and they crucified him. But he was good and kind like his father and he told his father that they didn't know what they were doing and to forgive them. And God said, okay. Well, his dad... God, appreciated everything that he had done and all his hard work on earth, so he told him he didn't have to go on the road anymore. He could stay in heaven. So he did. And now he helps his dad out by listening to prayers and seeing things which are important for God to take care of and which ones that he can take care of himself without having to bother God. Like a secretary, only very more important. You can pray anytime you want and they're sure to hear you because they've got it worked out so that one of them is on duty at all times. You should go to church on Sunday because it makes God happy. And if there's anybody you want to make happy, it's God. Don't skip church to do something you think will be more fun like going to the beach. That's wrong. (laughs) And besides, the sun doesn't come out at the beach until noon anyway. If you don't believe in God, besides being an atheist, you'll be very lonely. Because your parents can't go everywhere with you like to camp. But God can And it's good to know he's around when you're scared in the dark or when you can't swim very good and you get thrown into real deep water by big kids. You shouldn't always just think of what God can do for you. I figure God put me here and he can take me back anytime he pleases. And that's why I believe in God. You know, there are a few things I find myself wanting to correct about this eight-year-old's theology, but by and large, that's not bad, right? 
especially after we've lived an entire week of social media craziness. Yes, the collective wisdom of social media. And I know some of, you are, some of you already feel self-righteous and you think, well, you know what, I'm not on social media. Well, neither am I, all right? But it's all around us. Well, I'm on Twitter. I guess I'm on Twitter. That counts. But there's an opinion about everything and there's sort of a collective wisdom. And you, one thing you can count on in the social media world, in the social media commentary, man, there is one um, opinion here and one opinion here. And all we seem to be doing is waging these wars of words and wit at each other. And I want to cut through that for a second this morning, and I I don't want to spend time talking about the banter on social media, and I'm not necessarily addressing the, um, uh, the signature of the governor in Alabama, although I am. I have no aim to be political this morning. I have every aim to be biblical. And as we are discussing the attributes of God, we talked last week about the sovereignty of God, and we said God's sovereignty is when his power, ultimate infinite power and ultimate infinite authority come together, and he has the power to do that which he wills and decrees. But if we stepped back and said, okay, what's behind God's sovereignty? What's behind the power? What's behind the authority? I would say Psalm 139 helps us with that. And we would call this the omnis of God. It's kind of old uh, theological language. You've got um, omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence. We don't talk that way anymore. We try to find more clever or palatable ways to say these things the church has always said, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it is a good reminder this morning that in the midst of these conversations, is there an answer? Is there one who speaks authoritatively? Is there truth in which we can ground a real reality. And I want to argue that absolutely there is this morning. And I hope I get through this. My voice wants to give out on me, so I'm just going to keep going best I can. Psalm 139, here's, here's the deal. We don't know when David wrote this or what the occasion is that David writes it, but, but we can observe some things. He is in some turmoil and some stress. He, he's in a... He's in a time where he's uh, particularly reflective. It seems as though the circumstances around him are closing in. And in this moment, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God comes to him, and he seems to look past his circumstances into the horizon of the majesty of God. It's instructive for us if for no other reason to hear that. Now, I'll say we could talk about these things. We're going to talk about the omniscience of God. That's the first six verses. The next six verses are the omnipresence of God. The next six are the omnipotence of God. And then the final is sort of his lament or his prayer wish. We'll 
get through at least the first three things. Hopefully, I'll comment on the last one. But we could spend, not we could spend more than one Sunday, we could spend more than a lifetime of Sundays considering these things. I want to do enough this morning that would shake us free from some of the ways I believe we get lulled into thinking about God. The all-knowing, everywhere, do-anything God. That's who he's telling us about. All right, so look at this. We're going to look at the penetrating presence of God. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. He's stating a fact. In fact, he is feeling the weight of what it is to be known and to be searched to be discerned down to the very core of who he is. And I'll tell you, we're going to see David say some things, and it it sounds wonderful to us. It sounds like these things are positive. What David's really saying is, I'm absolutely terrified by the thought, you know everything about me. In fact, you know more about me than I know about. You know more about me than I could ever know about me. And it's terrifying to me. In verse 7, you'll you'll see it. Maybe that he feels his need to, to escape from this penetrating presence. And yet he'll find there's no place to escape from it. Because God is all knowing and he's everywhere and does everything. You've searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up and you discern my thoughts from afar. From afar could be a, 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 you know, a, a space, but it also refers to a time. What he really means is you know my thoughts from beforehand. You know my thoughts from before I had my thoughts is what he's saying. And you search out my path and my lying down and you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand on, uh, land hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. It's like a fortress wall that, that I can't attain. Can't climb up to it or over it. When we talk about omniscience, what we are saying is this knowledge that is fully possessed. Anything that is known is possessed by God. God doesn't learn anything. There's nothing to learn. He does not ask questions because he doesn't know the answer. And yet it's not knowledge that's just merely comprehensive. It certainly is that. But it's not just merely comprehensive or, or merely cataloged, you know, like Google, you know? It's knowledge that's personal and intimate and active. It's, it discerns us, it sifts us, it searches us, surrounds us, handles us. One uh, writer, Tozer, says this, God... God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters. All mind and every mind. All spirit and all spirits. All being and every being. All creaturehood and all creatures. 
all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, all secrets, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth and in motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. He knows everything. We tend to think of it, though, like children are lined up in the cafeteria. There's children lined up in this religious school. And at the head of the table, there's this large pile of apples. And the teacher made a note and said, take only one. God's watching. That's what they do at religious school, you know. They God you. You know, God's watching. So one intelligent student at this elementary school Um, at the other end of the table where there's a large pile of chocolate chip cookies, he attaches a note. Take all you want. God's watching the apples. (laughs) And we kind of think about it that way, right? I mean, it's what our finite minds do. We live in time and space, in history and chronology. God created all those things. He's not bound by any of them. He knows and comprehends all at the same time, simultaneously, fully and completely, the past, the present, the future, the possible, and the actual. All of it. He sees your 20 years ago, your today, and 20 years from now, right now. We're bound by time and We're bound by chronology because we're finite. And God created those things that we would live in them so we could experience his decreed will as it plays out. But he knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. God's knowledge extends beyond awareness And what David is saying extends beyond his awareness and even the motives behind his awareness and and behind what he does. He knows everything. And not only does he know every move we'll make, he knows the motives behind every move we'll make. And that's why he says, oh, it's too wonderful Wonderful doesn't mean wonderful necessarily. It just means it's a wonder. It's surpassing. It's extraordinary. It's incomprehensible. It's the kind of knowledge that we don't have a category for. It is supernatural and it's terrifying. God knows intimately everything. Before the words even come out of your mouth, before you even knew you had the words to come out of your mouth, he knew it. You say, well, I don't, I don't fully understand that. Well, good, then we described it rightly. Well, he moves from omniscience, and I think in verse 7, he's, you know, he feels it's terrifying, it's suffocating in some ways. And he says, well, where should I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And that word presence there is the same word. Where could I flee 
from being face to face with you is what he's saying. And then he says, well, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. I mean, I, there's no, I can't go up high enough. I can't go down low enough. You're there. You're, you're there in death. I expect you to be there in heaven. That's where it says you'll be. I'd, but the truth is, you're there in hell too. I can't escape you anywhere. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, which is a very poetic way to say, if I go as far east as I can to, the, to where the sun rises, and then dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, which would have been to the west, the Mediterranean, if I go beyond what is known to the east and beyond what is known to the west, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Death cannot separate you from me. No distance can separate you from me. Verse 11, and if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, I, surely I could hide in the darkness from you, God. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Not only do you know everything, there is no place that you are not. What he's speaking about here is omnipresence. When you take the whole of what the Bible says about omnipresence, it is a theological term that refers to the unlimited nature of God and his ability to be everywhere at all times. Just think about this for a second. We think we know what this means. We, listen, we, we're, respect, we're, we're restricted to, to a given place at a given time, but not so with God. God's the cause of space, and so he's not subject to it. He's the cause of time, so he's not subject to it. Space is defined by bounds. God exceeds this. So here's what it really means. To say that God is omnipresent is to say that God is fully present everywhere. As if he were nowhere else. I mean, the way that, Paul, that, that David is putting it is that you are always everywhere in every conceivable space and time face to face with God. Now listen, this is not pantheism. Pantheism says God is everywhere and that he fills space like a gas. So you run in a canister of gas, you crack it open and the, and, the, and the gas then spreads out equally into all the places. So there's some there and some there and back here and over here and, and there's a little bit of gas everywhere. It's, it spreads out. But that's pantheism because pantheism says the, the sum total of all of that equals God. 
That's not what we mean when we say God is everywhere. All of Him is everywhere. He's completely present at every single point in space. And now we're beginning to get a picture of who God is. Does it make sense? We don't live that way. We, I mean, our default, I mean, maybe we believe something else. I mean, I'm sure we do. If we were pressed down to it, we'd say, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, God's everywhere. I get it. But we really, we operate as though God's here in this place, but he's not going to be in my car, at least not once I leave the parking lot. And he might have overheard the argument I had with my wife or the, the short temper I had with my kids. I mean, he might have overheard that. He's got great hearing, but well, David say, no, no. You're face to face with him in each of those moments. Everywhere. You can't escape him from death. There is no distance and there is no darkness. The night's as bright as the day to God. One old theologian writes it this way. He says, when you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you. From those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of men, you remove yourself into your room. Even in your room you fear some may witness from another quarter, so you retire into your heart. There you begin to meditate and yet he is more inward than your heart. Wherever, therefore, you shall have fled, there he is. From yourself, whither will you flee? Will you not follow yourself wherever you go? But since there is one more inward even than yourself, there is no place you may flee from God angry. that you do not find God willing to reconcile. Where will you flee from him that you do not end up fleeing to him? It's oh, a great thought. So one hand you say, well, I'm running from God. And on the other hand, I'd say, will you run into him? You think you're running from him. You're not. You're face to face with him. So he knows all. He's everywhere. And then he does all. He's going to end. The, so he's not end. But the next bit is, is the omnipotence. And here's what strikes me about it. Is that what David's going to do is he's going to take this infinite, unlimited power of God. And he's going to laser focus that power into a single area. And look at what he does with it in verse 13. He says, for you formed my inward parts... You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. And then here it is. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. When we speak about the omnipotence of God, what we're saying is that God is so powerful, He can choose to do anything He chooses to do. That God has His way in the highest of heights and the deepest of depths and in the infinite power of God, the power to bring about exactly and perfectly what he wills, the power to bring a universe into existence out of nothing with a word. And that power belongs to God alone. You cannot exaggerate or overstate the power of God. There is no place, time, space that his power is not sovereign. It's not authoritative. It's not decisive. It's not definitive. From eternity past to eternity future, God is omnipotent. And David takes all that power and in a moment of worship, laser focuses it And points it at the intimate and hands-on creation of life. That the full, omnipotent, all-knowing, everywhere power of God gets pointed there. All your days are ordained, he says in verse 16. Which means he not only creates and he ordains, he sustains, he upholds your body, your soul, keeping you together at every second, keeping your, your, all your atoms and your molecules together. And he also creates and ordains and sustains and upholds your history. The one end of Human life is conception. In my mother's womb, you knew me. You, you were knitting me together. And on the other end, at the very end of life, when you may come to a place of, of feeling old and fragile and saying, well, what am I even here for? David declares it's ordained. Every single day on earth, 
is ordained. There is a plan. There is a reason. From conception to the last breath, God is in charge. He's created you. He's ordained you. He upholds you. His power overshadows absolutely every second of your life. And because of that, there are ethical implications that spill out. And one of the ethical implications of the presence of God, and this is the reason that Everybody over the centuries has taken this doctrine seriously from early Christians, the earliest Christians to the ancient Jews. And they have said, they have always said, abortion and active euthanasia is wrong. And it's because you're putting yourself in the place of God. God is in charge of those parts of life. From the very beginning to the very end. And what we may deem as inconvenient. Or we may say, you know, let's do something about that. We find ourselves in direct violation of the glory and the right of God. And listen, I'm not being political. This is written millennia before. There's red and blue or Democrat or Republican or... This is not political. We do not sit on the throne of God. And when we ask questions, well, what am I even here for? Why is this useful? Or what does this matter? We need to know that we are a part of a conversation that's been going on since the very beginning. I'm going to, I want to trace this for a second in a way that way oversimplifies where we are as a culture. And when I say way oversimplify, I mean way oversimplify. But from the very beginning, in the earliest of all literatures, men and women are asking the question, what is the meaning of life? Where does meaning come from and it gets answered in several different ways and then it finally finds this sort of articulation in the writings of Plato and Aristotle and and they begin to talk about things like essence and they'll say you know what that every being every every man every woman every child has an essence And your essence comes to you from before birth. Now, they don't know where it comes from. They postulated, well, maybe wisdom or, you know, something like this. And 
But you have an essence, and it came to you before birth, and you're born in with an essence. And, and to be true to yourself and to be good is to live out in experience the essence you were created with, which is what Paul is saying. Listen, Paul addresses this in Acts chapter 17 at Mars Hill. He says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands. So he sees the, you know, the the grave marking for the unknown God. He says, I'll tell you who he is. He's not served by human hands, though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he's made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, having determined lots and and, uh, periods and boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. But yet he's not actually that far from us. For, and then he quotes one of their writers, in him we live and move and have our being Our essence. So Paul has his own theology of essence. That he knows Psalm 139, that it comes from God. Well, it became known as essentialism, prevailing thought for many of the centuries to follow. And there were several stabs and attempts to overthrow this, and the most successful comes about in the 19th century, after the Renaissance, after the Industrial Revolution, after the, after the time of the printing press, and a guy named Nietzsche begins to talk about nihilism. He's not the first one to ever do it, but he's the first one to do it in a way that gained a following. And he said, belief is this, nihilism is this, is that human life is utterly meaningless at its core. Well, you can imagine that's hard to swallow, and so the 20th century, it gets softened a bit by a guy named Sartre, and he says, well, listen, if we're born hardwired without purpose, if we're, if we're born without an essence, if, we, if we're born without any real purpose, then it's up to us to make our own purpose. It's up to us to create our own essence. It's up to us to write our own story, and it led to a prevailing, I mean, it led to where our culture is today, and that's existentialism, which says this, existence, existence precedes essence. Existence precedes meaning. And it says you have to write your own story. You have to write your own meaning. It's not predetermined. There is no set path to follow. The theists of the 20th century came along and said, yeah, sure, there's a God, but he's not intimate and he's not involved and he's not an imminent God. He's hands off and you can't look to him for meaning because he doesn't care. And so we are left with what is aptly named the absurd. And that is to search for answers in an answerless world. We're creatures who need meaning. 
but we're abandoned to a world of meaninglessness. So we cry out in the wilderness and get no response. And that is the starting place for our culture right now. Because there's no reason that the world was created and no reason for any of this. Nothing exists for any reason. So there's no absolutes, no justice, no fairness. It is up for us, up to us to create that for ourselves. That's the main, that's where we are. And so what gets introduced into our culture, which is a fine word and we use it all the time, but we'd be good to know where it's owing from. Sartre said, we need to live our authentic life. And authentic means that it is the meaning you've created, not a meaning you've adopted or from anyone else or has been prescribed to you. Authentic means your own meaning. You have to give life its meaning. And so what we do is we end up judging meaning by what's useful and what's valuable in the eyes of the world around us and us. And so our existence has to be justified. And where we're caught up in it and we don't even know it is so many of us are working so hard to justify our existence. It's like Rocky Balboa tells Adrian, if I can just go the distance, if I can just hear the bell ring, and I'm still standing, that I'll know first time in my life I'm not a bum. And when that's your starting place, then that informs how you view and think about the world around you, which is entirely different from what God inspires David to write and say, no, you, there is meaning. I am the author of meaning. I know all. I am everywhere. And my power is limitless. There's practical implications. I could say a lot about each of these. One, it should humble us, I think. Two, it should comfort us. It should encourage us. It should help us to pray. But I'll end with this. It should give us a right view of life from beginning to end. One of my old seminary professors, Robert Pine, writes this. It's from a book he wrote called Humanity and Sin, The Creation, Fall, and Redemption of Humanity. <clears throat> and I'll close with this. After centuries of wrestling with the problem of human suffering, Western societies largely agreed upon an answer. Placing its trust in technology. Technology ultimately represents a false hope for it cannot keep its promises, but we find ourselves increasingly enamored with the possibilities. If there is sickness, it can be cured. If there's pain, it can be relieved. If there is disease, it can be eradicated. If there are birth defects, they can be prevented. All of this is possible, we tell ourselves, if we grow in knowledge and in technological proficiency. But if those things ultimately fail us and suffering becomes unbearable, we may consider one last option, and that is that life be gently terminated. 
Can one argue that all human beings have inherent dignity and uh, unique value without appealing to some sort of divine authority? I would suggest that from a biblical perspective, one cannot. People are unique not because they think differently than chimpanzees, though they probably do. And human beings are not valuable because they contribute to a better world, though they probably do that too. People have inherent dignity and unique value because they have all been made in the image of God. Since every person has been created according to the divine image, every human life becomes sacred. This becomes very important. At the helm of bioethical discussions like the ones taking place, if one assumes a naturalistic philosophy which regards humanity as unique only in the sense that we have reached a higher stage of evolutionary development, those who are less capable may easily be regarded as less valuable. On the other hand, if one believes that human dignity comes from God, one who seeks to honor God will honor those with whom he has made in his image. The difference is especially apparent when considering those whom our society views as least valuable. The poor, the terminally ill, the elderly, the unborn, and the handicapped. They will conclude that it would be right to kill patients painlessly, including handicapped infants, if their lives were not judged by others to be pleasant or productive ones. I should probably add my own feelings to this. He goes on. The issues are colored uh, not only by my theology, but also by my experience. Our oldest son, Stephen, had open-heart surgery when he was just eight months old. Unfortunately, some countries and doctors and even some parents would not have allowed him to have that operation. Even though it was necessary to save his life, Steve has Down syndrome. And too many people think that lives like that are not worth saving. You know, my temptation as a proud dad has always been to talk about the things Stephen enjoys doing, how quickly he learned to read, how sincerely he loves the Lord, and try to convince others that his, that he, his very happy life was worth saving. On the other hand, my job as a theologian is to say simply this. His life was worth saving because he has inherent dignity as a human being in the image of God. And the same is true of little boys and little girls who never learn to read and those whose lives we don't think are happy and those who produce nothing at all. We are not God. And if you're reminded of nothing else this morning, be reminded of that. We have a God. He knows everything. He is everywhere, fully as if he were nowhere else. And his power surpasses all comprehension. And if you haven't come face to face with that God, 
and you're still looking for meaning in your life and still trying to create your own meaning, I will tell you, David here under the inspiration of this very God we're talking about says he's written your meaning. He's defined it. Created in the image of God, he's ordained every one of your days for his perfect purpose. And you can know him this morning because he sent his son to die for you. He sent his son to take all that is meaningless in your life and rebellious and wicked and broken and sinful onto himself so that you would know life eternal. I implore you this morning to believe. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the time that we been able to be in it this morning and I pray it would not return void.